Hannah Brown. Chris McLeish, here we are, episode number 69. I don't need to make a rhyme up for that. <laughs> I, I, like, literally, as I was saying that number there, I was like, he's going to giggle. He's going to giggle like a child. <laughs> and you did. <laughs> the number does the work. I don't need to think of anything. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. Such immature children that we be. But hey, nothing wrong with that. Can't be helped. When the person who invented numbers came up with 69, they were doing Satan's work, and I appreciate it. They were. That's absolutely true. But I bet you there's some innocent souls out there listening to this going, what do they mean? What are they talking about? Quick tip, Google it. Google it, (laughs) if you so dare. (laughs) You'll find some wild things, I'm sure. Um, Anyways, how be you, my friend? I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I've... um, as you know, pre-pod, not having the best of weeks, but that is yep. fine. Mm-hmm. Nothing mm-hmm. bad is happening. Just an entire existential crisis where I want to give up my entire hopes and dreams. But there is nothing like an existential crisis to give you food for thought. Do you know what I mean? It's just acting as one of those industries or any creative industry. It's just one of those things where it's like... You know when someone's job hunting and they do maybe 10 job applications and then they get seen mm-hmm. for two of them and then they get one of the jobs? That's fabulous. In mm-hmm. the creative industries, you literally have to beg and beg and beg for an audition that you never get. And you don't even get a response to say, no, thank you. You just don't ever find out that they don't want you. And then you do get auditioned, but you're still competing against like 50 million people. So... For every one acceptance you get, you get a good, like, 60 or 70 rejections. And most of them you never actually find out about. So I'm currently facing that at the moment. And it makes me just want to not do it anymore. But. It's fair. That's the biz. (laughs) That's the biz. I know. And I know people say, like, oh, you have to, like, rejection is part of the job. But it never gets easier. Yeah, rejection is part of the job. And rejection is a part of any job. Everyone... Yeah, has that happened but the thing with creative jobs particularly like freelancing is like say you were an accountant and you got three rejections and then you got a job you then most likely will keep that job for a very long time because that's the field you're working in and that's Mm -hmm. the field you've chosen but with creative stuff the job ends and then you have to start again and almost nobody has a job that actually continues on for a long period of time so it's like getting a hundred rejections in the space of a year, yeah. for example, but then constantly having to keep looking for jobs and getting more rejections. It yeah. just really sucks. And I think I've just reached it does. the very end of my rope this week. No, I absolutely agree with that. Well, I'm not I'm like, I can fully empathize because that is what absolutely played into me kind of doing a little bit of a... Not quite a 180 (laughs) degree turn. Let's say like a 65 degree turn. Okay. Um, Because, yeah, it got to the point... Because I know freelancing is particularly hard and it takes a certain kind of person to do it. And I know some people absolutely thrive on the hustle and getting indoors and talking to people, networking, all that kind of thing. I am just not that person. No. <laughs> That's not a quality that I have. I find the hustle stressful. 
and no thank you basically yeah so i can totally get where you're coming from because it is a constant stress because you're continuously facing unemployment and that's scary it as is an adult it is very scary it is scary and it is just part of the biz but it's just it's very few people out there who will not have that kind of thing get to them at some point well there's also very few there's also people out there that in the industry that don't have that fear it's safe to say yeah especially when you have reasons you have money or you have family in the industry all those kinds of things or you have a name all those kinds of things make things much easier but getting to that stage where yeah Yeah. it's just it's hard it's It's hard. hard it's a hard time and if we were not in opposite sides of the city, I would reach out and give you a big snuggly hug. And I would really appreciate it because I could yeah. do with one. Because Mrs. Matthew Jones also has COVID this week. So I can't even see him. So I have just kind of sat in my flat stewing, feeling like absolute trash for about three days. Yeah. Um, but that's fine. It's not anyone else's problem, but mine. <laughs> oh, love. <laughs> Um, but how are you i don't know well do you know what this is the first podcast it feels like in a very long time where i actually have done things yes i I actually have stories this is although the first one and this is quite this is like niche geek corner this week to begin with but doctor who (laughs) yes has quite a big anniversary coming up soon i think it's 60th next year 60th that sounds right from is that right I 60th think. yeah yeah diamond yeah let's go with that um and not only is it exciting that mr david tennant is returning to the role along with Catherine tate see the other day when i found out that neil patrick harris is going to be in doctor who then i saw footage of him in a tuxedo dancing with david tennant mcleish I lost my composure, let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, well, I saw this as well. And actually, Neil Patrick Harris was in Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago doing an escape room. Are you kidding me? No, no. I did not know this. What escape? I think he went to Locked In Edinburgh. Oh my God. Um, I can't, I don't know which room he did. I think he did the cutting room at Locked In Edinburgh. Uh, which is a very good game I've heard. I've only done one of their games before. In fact, I think he did okay. two. I think he did their new one as well. Oh my God. Sorry, that's really neat. I just had to get that out of my system because when I saw it the other day, I was like full on fangirling. I'm just very excited. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> I'm very excited. NPH. He, just look, he also looks incredible. So I'm just like, yes, Russell T. Davis, this is excellent casting. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I have watched a couple of episodes and I don't dislike them, but when it comes when it becomes too alieny, then I am like, oh. But yeah, I like some of the stories. I like the Van Gogh one. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because um, some are less less explicit aliens. Yeah, and borders more on the supernatural kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as like the supernaturally ones, I'm like absolutely. But yeah, yeah it's the ones that are kind of aliens that my eyes almost roll out my head i went to not one mcleish but two gigs last week but like legit gigs that's (laughs) exciting who did you see well on saturday 
I pitched up to Ibrook Stadium to go and see the delectable Mr. Harry Styles. Yes. And yes. Con- I, prior to that, I had a lot of respect for him. Quite liked some of his music. A lot of his music you can have a good wee boogie to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wasn't like a hardcore kind of fan. I am now, I can safely say, a hardcore Harry Styles fan. And I've had his music on repeat for about two weeks now. Okay, that's good. I am converted. Uh, that's good. I I enjoy his... Um... Hello, it's not the same as... Exactly. It's pretty good. Who doesn't want to dance to that? Yeah, it's pretty catchy. I yeah. like it. Can't say I I've was... ever really listened to it. Like, I've never gone out my way to listen to him. Yeah. His stuff... I think you'd, you know what? I think you'd quite like a lot on his most recent album because it's got a kind of 60s, 70s vibe. Mm, I do like that. And I know, yeah. you, I know you quite like that. Yes, I do. So I think you'd enjoy that. We, uh, we often get to, whenever we're in work, we just choose our own little playlist to listen to. And my, my go-to recently have been 60s and 50s remixes. Mm. So it tends to be kind of a electric, electro swing was that some of the stuff i was listening to which is like well that was very 20s but they did that kind of vibe on a lot of 50s stuff and it was thoroughly enjoyable i love that so much this is why we're friends yes i love (laughs) old music but then with a wee boppy twist big fan with a wee boppy twist yeah got to do that swing um so yes that was stressful Mm -hmm. like because it was massive and there was feather boas everywhere we were standing and we were right at the back so we had plenty of space but it is always quite stressful but I had a lovely time and do you know what was glorious right and this is such a stupid little thing but it made my heart so happy so Harry Styles is obviously a major ally of the LGBTQ community right yes and he was there was pride flags everywhere like it was just amazing and it was just people living their best lives and not being ashamed of their identity and see the fact that it was in a football stadium which is yeah. historically very much places not just that like all football stadiums are places that are very much like can be quite volatile can be full of hate and not gonna lie can be very homophobic yes indeed yes like so but to see for just that one night just people waving all kinds of flags from the lgbtq community harry Styles running about with a proud flag it just was great (laughs) yeah no i appreciate that that's cool it was amazing it was so good so i had that and then a few days later because to cut a long story short my younger brother decided he did not want to go to a concert anymore ended up going to see ed sheeran at Hamden. Random? Random. Knew about three songs. I'm not Excellent. gonna lie. Excellent, yep, cool. Um, I enjoyed those three songs thoroughly. Um, and it was a very good show. It was all very impressive. And there was fireworks. And we love a firework. We do. We do. Keep your dogs this, inside. Yep. And the seats were excellent. And like, I was, I was very lucky that I got to go to both of those gigs and I did enjoy them, but I think I've come to the conclusion that I am not a gig human. Yeah, I can quite confidently, confidently say I am not a gig human either. Yeah, 
I just, I find them very overwhelming experiences because there's a lot of bodies and it's very loud and just it's the the noise I find very overwhelming and I spent the whole day like leading up to both like properly anxious because I was like okay how do you get in and once you get in where do you go once you get in and what's the toilet situation like that's my thing we have a cat we have (laughs) a cat she's arrived I always just want to know where the exits are at all times. Yeah. It's why I don't like crowds of people. I've probably said this before, but I do just, I don't like crowds. I particularly don't like crowds when there's strangers involved. So it can even be like a big party, a big party where there's people that I know. Yeah. If there's too many bodies, then I still, I find that very stressful. Um, So no, gigs are not my jam. I've enjoyed the ones that I've gone to, but I always feel yeah, like dropping out last minute because I find it quite overwhelming. But um, yeah. it depends on the setting, I suppose, as well. Yeah. And obviously, if you're sitting in a theatre, right, like, say you're sitting in the Edinburgh Playhouse, that's 3,000 people. But there's a big difference between sitting amongst and the noise of 3,000 people with 50,000 people. Very true, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's what the whole time I was just feeling a bit panicky. And I was fine once I was there and I relaxed into it and it was good. But, and I like, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it and I took positive things away from both of those gigs and I had a, I did have a good time in the end. But I think I came to the conclusion, I was like, I'm not, unless it's somebody I really desperately want to see, I'm not really yeah. a gig human being because it does just stress me out slightly. That is fine. <laughs> Not everyone is going to be suited to everything. I Anything that feels like there's no control. So mm-hmm. theatre's slightly different because generally theatre people aren't drinking loads. Yeah. Because drunk people terrify me. That's, that's a fair, it's a valid fear to have. Yes. I could be best friends with you, but the second you have a drink in you, I don't want to be around you. Yeah. Um, because alcohol scares me. Yep, that's fair. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. I have theories of where that comes from, but I don't know for sure. Because that was, that's another thing about gigs. One thing I, so with like theatre, if we're going to compare the two, theatre is very regimented. Like, you have your start time, you have your first act, then you have your interval, and then you have whatever comes afterwards, right? With gigs, there's so much dead time that you're just standing about in, and I really don't like that because yeah. I just find because if you're not drinking or whatever, you're just literally wasting time, and I yeah I hate it. There's yeah not, I get that. There's not like a really a proper structure. It just kind of happens. Yeah, and there's always the thing of support acts come on and then they go off and then you're still kind of like oh god when are the actual ones coming on like is it going to be 20 minutes is it going to be three hours yeah if it's madonna is she ever going to show up yeah that was my exciting week where i actually did things that's good like me i don't do things which is fair i (laughs) i love to keep myself busy as much as possible but i tend to just do really random things that no one will care about but i made I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but I've now made two dresses from scratch. Of course, because you were going to make one dress 
the last time we recorded and you've since showed me a picture and it's gorgeous thank you i uh, thoroughly enjoyed myself but actually whilst sewing i was listening to a lot of podcasts because that's the oh way to gosh. keep yourselves entertained that's not like you at all i know right and <laughs> i have a recommendation and it's i've maybe recommended this woman before but kate winkler dawson who does the tenfold more wicked Mm. um podcast it's tenfold more wicked is named after a piece of jekyll and hyde oh it's like it's a homage to jekyll and hyde i didn't know that yes and Mm. the second season of tenfold more wicked is all about burke and hare (gasps) and it is six or seven episodes maybe eight episodes and it is fascinating. It is the deepest dive oh, into Birkin here I have ever heard. And it is fabulous. There's so much stuff that I didn't know. I'm absolutely oops, I'm absolutely gonna to have to listen to this because I'm here for that. Yeah. So Kate Winkler Kate Winkler Dawson it does mostly historical stuff, so it is older cases. So I like genuinely thoroughly like thoroughly recommend it because they kind of go into every single person that was a victim. So many things that I didn't know. So many things that I had yeah. never heard. So really, really recommend it. I Season one was excellent as well, but I'd listened to season one a long time ago and then I somehow missed season two. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I'm just getting up the question of the week because I forgot that's a thing I had to have open. <laughs> Elevator music, insert here, please. Okay. Do, do, do. Hmm. <laughs> okay we're good thank you we have reached our we have reached our floor okay so we've got a fashion question this week (gasps) fashion fashion give it a bit of vogue okay so you christopher mcleish yes have been invited to the met gala oh yes yes what designer or fashion house do you choose to dress you? Ooh. My instinct, because, okay. because she utilised a lot of tartans. She yes. loved a tartan and a plaid. Um, Vivian Westwood pops into my head. Yes. Kind of yep. the, the, punkish, the punkish vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, although I know I don't scream punk when you look at me, but I feel like I could... <laughs> I could make it work for myself if it came to Met Gala. Is that a hidden side to you that we do not know about, is that you're actually a punk? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, <laughs> but it would just be a way of getting a bit of tartan on the go. Absolutely. That's completely Obviously, fair enough. dependent on the theme, of course. True. Of course. Of course. Um, may I be so controversial and say that I would try and find a very small designer who needs some kind of support? I don't think that's controversial at all. I think that's a very, that's a good way of utilising your influence. Yes, that's what I would do. If I were influential enough to be invited to the Met Gala, I would employ people who are up and coming who are not known to the masses and get their name out there. That's very true. That's very true. Be an influencer. That's the dream. (laughs) It's not the dream at all. It's not the dream. Think of all the pictures you'd have to take all the time. Ugh, I hate being on my phone. Uh, what about you? If you were to go to a fashion house? Okay, so of course it's dependent on the theme, right? 
Of course, yes, of course. So, if it was a theme that was like asking for full on gothic, right? Mm-hmm. Was asking like for something with the jet beads and the corset and the bustle and the silks would be fully knocking on the door of Alexander, Alexander McQueen. McQueen. Yeah, I could, I could hear you saying that before you said it. Thank you very much. We're yeah. so in sync. Um, would absolutely be there because that fashion house is just all over the gothic. Yeah. Like, they have like this glorious curation out the minute for like their, was it their collection this year? I can't, th- I can't remember. But it's like a print, a white dress with like a sort of, I think it's a print of a rose or something that's been like blown up. If you get what I mean. Ooh. But on the model, it looks like a blood stain. <gasps> like it looks Ooh. like it just oh it's just it gives vampire vibes and I love it so yeah. much. So yeah, if we're talking gothic, going to Alexander McQueen. If we're going something a little bit more 1950s, mm-hmm. if we're going something a little bit more like a classy or old Hollywood, maybe we'd go to Dior. <gasps> Nice, yes, of course. Because they were like pioneers of that like 1950s silhouette, little waist, big petticoat. Yeah. You know, you know, very much here for that. There's that like iconic black and white um, skirt suit that I absolutely would like to have in my life as well. That's just like beautiful. Um, So would like definitely, definitely go there. Although... Since we're on the topic of Met Gala, yes, perchance I know exactly what you're going to talk about, and I you know what I'm going to ask, mm-hmm. don't you? Um, there was quite a controversial uh, garment worn this year at the Met Gala. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on Marilyn Monroe's dress being worn? I think they're all a load of absolute idiots. <laughs> it should never, ever, ever, ever. Have been put on somebody else's body. I agree. I'm glad you said. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I mean, that dress is obviously iconic. There was plenty of things that Marilyn wore that I would consider iconic, but it is probably one of the top tier ones. Mm-hmm. I do consider myself a fan, and I do really admire her, and I think she was a very intelligent woman, and I think she. Agreed. Yeah, she just is cracking, and I really wish that she was still with us as an old lady now, but mm-hmm. um. But then you've got someone who's as boring as a a Kardashian. (laughs) Like, I personally couldn't give less of a toss. (laughs) Speaking of influencers, couldn't care less about any of the Kardashians. I'm not interested in people who have money and I'm not interested in people who are just the epitome of narcissistic. And for them to literally come along and take a big, massive steaming poop all over something as iconic as Marilyn's dress that she sang to Kennedy in, it makes me so mad. And then she ruined it. I feel like I've accidentally opened a can of worms here. Oh, dear. It makes me so mad. Like, it's just because it's the, they are the literal epitome of the kind of people I don't like in 2022. No, that's fair. I, I I do get where you're coming from. I I am very much because I I I love me like a historical garment and like I love me um historic artifacts. 
And I am very much one of those people that is like, you do not touch historic artifacts, particularly items of clothing. Like, I would love to try and squish my 21st century body into like a legit 19th century dress like that gorgeous bottle green dress that they have at the national museum of scotland mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the bustle dress i recall it would like do anything but the but average would... <laughs> the average height of women at that time well yeah like exactly three foot like, six. and that's it that would be an issue but also like i wouldn't try because it's not mine does that make sense yeah yeah totally i it's... also think like historical subjects um, and objects have like a sort of ephemeral quality to them in that they, they, they existed in a specific point in time as a signifier of that event. You, you don't touch it because yeah. that's, that's what it is. It would be like if someone like found Anne Boleyn's like iconic bee necklace with the three pearls dripping off it yeah and then was just like wearing it yeah not okay (laughs) i understand the argument that these things are made to be worn but also i'm like some just shouldn't be ever again just leave them who's first this week is it i think it could be yourself me Well, last week, I covered the brutal murder of six-year-old June Cruikshank and mentioned uh, that there was... and mentioned that this was the first brutal killing of a child in Aberdeen since the 1930s. So, Mm -hmm. today, I will tell you about that murder Ah, from the 1930s. So... Eight-year-old Helen Priestley lived in Aberdeen. Oh, trigger warning, this is also about child murder if you didn't already pick up on that. Eight-year-old Helen Priestley lived in Aberdeen with her parents John and Agnes in a tale strikingly similar to the other child murders of old that have been covered on this podcast. Helen was sent out to the shop by herself to purchase something. In this instance, she was away to shop for bread. And I'm glad that sending your kids to the shop unaccompanied is kind of, it's a thing of the past. For the most part. It is. You probably probably wouldn't do that anymore. No. I never did that as a child. I have a feeling I probably did, but... Aberlady, different place. Different place, different time. Different Different time. The 1990s, let me tell you. (laughs) Different time. Um, So... Oh, dear. Helen sadly never returned. As the hours passed and Helen failed to return with the bread from the nearby co-op... The matter was reported to the police, who subsequently launched one of the biggest ever searches in Aberdeen. Officers, assisted by volunteers from the surrounding area, continued to look for the missing girl throughout the night and into the early hours of April 21st. Yet by this stage, as the Press and Journal reported at the time, the initial worry had changed to dread. Her parents were well-liked by most, But the community rallied together to search for the missing Helen far and wide. However, answers only began to emerge when searching a little closer to home. 
One of the neighbours, Alexander Parker, who had continued to look for Helen well into the night, discovered a blue Hessian sack lying against the wall at 5am as he was turning into the close to wake Mr Priestley. To his horror, the sack contained Helen's body. Her own father had walked by that very spot where she was found hours earlier and he confirmed that she had to have been placed there between 2 and 5am. The sack was dry despite heavy rains that had fallen that night and this led the investigators to focus on people from within the building to find the perpetrator. An initial examination indicated the child had been strangled and also revealed bruising on her upper thighs and sexual organs and as the news spread throughout the city, vigilante groups began taking to the streets armed with clubs and other weapons. Marks on the bag indicated a Canadian export stamp, which was determined to be used when transporting flour. This limited the amount of places that could be the source of the bag's origin. The bakery near Helen's home was visited for information. The baker there confirmed that a woman had come into the store and asked for a bag that matched the one that cocooned Helen's body. He gave the police a rough description of the lady. The police recognised the volatility of the situation and the need to assuage public fears, and their investigations soon unearthed ill feelings that existed between the Priestleys and a neighbouring couple. The Priestley family were popular, as I say, amongst the community, but they and the Donald family had exchanged harsh words and were not on speaking terms. Hmm. It became clear that some childish name-calling between Helen and Jeannie and Alexander Donald had been the catalyst for the dreadful event which gradually unfolded on and in the next few days. This was not uncommon in tenement life, and there was no reason to suspect tragedy would ensue from Helen calling Mrs MacDonald a coconut. <laughs> I don't know what, what the basis of this nickname is. I'm hoping it's not anything racist <laughs> because coconuts are obviously like a Caribbean. Yeah. It feels very Caribbean. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. She just called okay. her a coconut. Okay. But a series of apparently petty incidents, a scowl here, a shake or a verbal insult there eventually finished in a slap. Oh. Uh, so this all culminated and climaxed with a murder which gained banner headlines throughout Britain. And you guessed it, the Hessian sack where Helen was discovered had been picked up from the baker by a woman who looked suspiciously like Jeannie Donald. Oh! At first, both the husband and the wife were implicated in Helen's death, but more focus began to centre on Jeannie. The details were released of how she had previously struck the victim, and the forensic evidence became increasingly compelling. Jeannie's husband was eliminated as a suspect when it was determined that he had been at work in a nearby barber shop when Helen vanished. That did not explain how Helen was raped then, if Jeannie was the culprit. A deeper look at the child's injuries revealed that a hammer or broom handle had simulated rape perhaps to frame a man for the crime. A specialist was brought in to examine the sack and he was able to show that Jeannie's hair matched the hairs found inside the bag. 
Type O blood stains were found in the Donald's house, which matched Helen's blood type. That alone would not prove the blood belonged to the child, however. The specialist then concluded that since the simulated rape had been so rough, Helen's intestines ruptured, he would be able to find bacteria from the intestines in Helen's blood. That's like the conclusion he drew. This is 1930s. Oh my God. And that proved to be the evidence that would sink any hope of Jeannie being able to plead innocent. By most accounts, Mrs. Donald was conscientious, hardworking, and a woman with no history of any criminal behaviour. Her husband, a barber, who had initially been the prime suspect, was devoted to her and they had a daughter of their own, of Helen's age, who was also called Jeannie, and they, she would often play with Helen. Worse still, from the accused perspective, Accused's perspective, Jeannie Donald Jr. revealed that on the day that Helen had gone missing, she had noticed the bread in her home was different from the bread that her parents usually bought. And it emerged mm. that that loaf of bread was exactly the same product purchased by Helen on the day she disappeared. Mm. On the morning of the murder, the prosecution counsel speculated that Helen had started one of her tirades on the stairs. Jeannie had grabbed her by the shoulders close to her neck, causing Helen to faint. She was unaware that the girl actually suffered from a condition that made her lose consciousness easily, and she perhaps was convinced that she had killed her. So Jeannie's first mistake was to drag the girl into the kitchen and start to cause damage to her sexual organs with a broom handle in order to make it look as though she had been raped. However, the first blow woke Helen up. Her screaming terrified the older woman and she grabbed her by the neck until she stopped. Now she knew that she was a murderer. So she stuffed the body into a jute sack. She stored it in the cupboard under the sink until the early hours, uh, which is when she dumped it in the hallway, hoping that people would believe Helen's death was the work of a pervert. This cumulative evidence was so conclusive that the jury took just 18 minutes to return a guilty verdict. And Jeannie Donald became one of the first people in the world to be convicted on that type of forensic evidence, which nowadays we take for granted. Outside the building. Yes. So. That's fascinating. Yes. So literally it was just a case of the man working on it, the specialist, thought if her intestines have been ruptured, there will be bacteria from her intestines in her blood. And that Mm -hmm. blood sample from inside the flat of the Donald's Mm -hmm. contained the bacteria that he suspected would be there. So he was able to place Jeannie, uh, place Helen inside the Donald's flat. At the time when she was bleeding. How amazing is that? Outside the building, angry members of the public made their feelings plain and bade for vengeance. Yet inside the court, Lord Aitchison, who had never worn the black cap before this case, was reduced to tears as he sentenced Donald to death. God. Now, Lord Aitchison's name may not be familiar, but this is the same Lord Aitchison who was involved in the case of the amazing Mr. Chesney. Which was the man ah. that uh, killed his mum, vanished, and then killed again, but as a different man. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And Lord Aitchison also worked with Sir Arthur, with Arthur, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> 
and others to secure the release of Oscar Slater. Oh my God. Who was the, the Jewish man uh, from episode four, I think. Four, four or five, yeah. Um, who was accused of killing... Marion Gilchrist. Marion Gilchrist, indeed. Not the doctor. Yes, not... That was, that was Bastion with a chair lady. Yes. Oh, God. That Marion Gilchrist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Aitchison was, leading, was the leading counsel at the appeal in 1929, uh, which managed to get Oscar Slater exonerated. And he gave, he gave a speech, a very powerful speech. Uh, take okay. a stab at how long you think that speech would be that would then convince everyone that Oscar Slater was, was innocent. Hmm. Let's go 25 minutes. 14 hours. That's quite a long speech, that. I don't think I know that many words to make no. 14 hours. I bet you he repeated himself <laughs> over and over again. Because <laughs> I... Well they, prob- well, they probably forgot it every two hours, so he could just keep getting away That's and true. the same thing. <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely true. You'd be like, what did he say two hours ago? <laughs> I don't think he said that before. So after the verdict, uh, which was covered in depth by all the national newspapers... Jeannie was driven off through the crowds in the journey from the Scottish capital to Craig Inch's prison in Aberdeen to await her punishment. On August 3rd, her lawyers lodged an appeal on her behalf, but contemporary accounts showed they were not hopeful it would succeed. However, in the space of 24 hours, the Lord Provost of Aberdeen, Henry Alexander, had his summer, day, <laughs> had his summer holiday abrupted <laughs> had his summer holiday <laughs> abrupted no why is this so hard to say had his summer holiday abruptly interrupted <sighs> whoa now that was a tricky sentence that was hard after receiving a letter from the secretary of state this okay. dramatic correspondence confirmed that the perpetrator would not face death by hanging but would instead be forced to serve the rest of her life behind bars at a women's jail in Duke Street in Glasgow. Hey, we've been there as well. We have. We've been all over the place Good this Lord. story. Ultimately, though, despite the reprieve, the tragedy devastated two families. Donald never spoke about her reasons for committing the murder. She was later described as a model prisoner, somebody who adapted to an existence without her freedom. Indeed, when Alexander Donald became terminally ill with cancer in the summer of 1944, she was granted compassionate leave to care for him in his dying days. Then, in what many people regarded as a remarkable, if not inexplicable, development, the same woman who had been convicted of a capital offence was released from prison after her husband's death, only ten years after she stood in the dock to hear her death sentence. What the hell? Yep. Oh, God. Jeannie Donald lived the rest of her life under an assumed name and died 32 years later in 1976 at the age of 81. And only served 10 years for murdering a child. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Helen's parents, for their part, were denied any understanding of why their beloved daughter had been snatched away from them so young. As one correspondent letter wrote... 
Quote, this was a case of a minor feud having catastrophic consequences for the families and Helen Priestley in particular. It was common enough for neighbours living so close together to have arguments and fallouts, but thankfully these rarely developed into anything worse. The memorial to Helen in the city's Allenvale Cemetery was allowed to fall into disrepair and was in danger of disintegrating by the start of 2019. But the gravestone was restored following a campaign by North East crime historian Bruce Colley, who was appalled at discovering the state of the burial site. He initially contacted workers at the cemetery, but when nothing was done, he subsequently raised the matter with Aberdeen Bereavement Services. Mr. Colley said, quote, When I first came across Helen's grave in 2016, it was shocking because it was damaged, it was clearly dis- deteriorating, and it was just lying flat on the ground. I eventually got in touch with Ian Burnett at the bereavement service and to his credit he made sure the stone was cleaned and reset and brought back to a condition that pays proper respect to little Helen. Since it has been repaired several people have placed flowers on the grave and that makes people very glad to think people are finally remembering this poor little girl once again. It's one of the... Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? Yeah. It's one of the few redeeming features of a, in a very, very dark chapter of Aberdeen's past. Now, just a little other tidbit that I came across in researching this. Okay. While Dr. Fiona Jane Brown, hey was... Hey It could be you. ...was working as curator for Grampian Police Force Museum, she had given a talk about the case of little Helen and was later contacted by a lady in her 80s who told her that the week before Helen's murder, she and her friend went to visit a local fortune teller. These two young teens, keen to know if they would have boyfriends very soon, were immediately disappointed when the woman told them to go away, that she could not read their fortunes today. She said, No, I cannot read your palms, my dearies, for I have seen a terrible thing in my crystal ball. A wee girlie is going to die soon, and all of Aberdeen will mourn for her, so away with you, come back another day. Oh. oh. And that is the story of Helen Priestley. Oh, poor Helen. I know. I think it's the thing that kind of shooketh me a bit is because so much of Glasgow is tenement buildings yeah. and people living in very close quarters. Mm-hmm. That it just makes it feel a little... Like, you can see that kind of thing happening and people having disagreements and everything, but it just yeah. seems so yeah. scary to think of a family living in a tenement could just have a random neighbour next door kill their child. Yeah, that's quite scary. Because of a disagreement or because she called them names. Like, grow yeah. up, Jeannie. You're a fully grown woman. <laughs> Helen's just being a wee child yeah. calling you a name. Yeah. Big no, loop. that's fair. Yeah, that's... Yeah. It's horrible. Horrendous. And for it's her horrible. to not have any explanation, th- I think that's maybe why they came up with the theory that it was an accident and that she fainted and yeah. thought that she'd killed her. Yeah. It, But she never actually confirmed any of that. She was just happy to be put away and never talk about it again. And oh my, Yeah, that's oh, twisted. Yeah. But it, well, it's just horrendous. I, I apologise for the brutality of the actual like what she did to helen yeah yeah but um 
it's just depraved like totally oh absolutely horrendous. like that's oh that, no just no any anytime there's a a murder of a child i just don't yeah get it i just don't get it it ta- but that's the thing is like it takes someone who is i almost hope that it was accidental and that in a state of panic genie yeah. did stupid stuff because if it was an actual intentional murder for her to then be free 10 years later just because her husband was dying is yeah. wild concerning yes <laughs> because to murder a child you have to, to intentionally murder a child you would have to have some kind of psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies. Absolutely. And also considering herself that she was a mother with a child the same age. Yeah, 100%. 100- who, like, who was her daughter's pal? Yeah, legit. Like, honestly. So, like, there was not much difference if she was, like, murdered her own daughter or murdered that poor girl. Yeah. It was... Oh, no. Wild. That's not... That's not okay. Well, so there you are. That might be the last child murder I do for a while. <laughs> Yeah. Because <laughs> they are, ju- it's just absolutely grim. Yeah, it's heavy, it's heavy stuff. It's not, it's not pleasant. It's no. not pleasant at all. No. Nope. Do you have anything nice and light and fluffy for us? <laughs> <laughs> That's him. Do you not have one of your cats to show and tell to lighten the mood? Or have they, all, have they abandoned you? They have abandoned me. So, I'm doing some architecture this week. Ooh. Which we've not had for a very long time. We haven't. But it's some, it's a very niche architecture this week, let me tell okay. you. Okay. So, um, Glasgow is famed for its rich Victorian architecture, with tourists often encouraged, encouraged to look up whilst exploring the city. Very true. Yep. Each building has a history and once upon a time served a purpose, but now serve as reminders of the city's wealthy past. However, nestled amongst the cacophony of old and new sit reminders of the 19th century, ones that often go unnoticed by the passerby. These ornate relics not only remember the previous years, but occasionally people, their histories either unknown or forgotten. Some of these histories are positive, imbued with stories of care of thanks. Others are slightly darker, relics left from the city's imperial past. Let's talk about Glasgow's water fountains. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> we plot twist for you there. Yes, didn't see this coming. <laughs> oh, Lord. So let's first start off by talking about the John Aitken Memorial Fountain. Okay. Okay. So, situated at Govan Cross in Glasgow's south side, almost directly opposite to the statue of Mary Barber, sits a cast-iron drinking fountain in shades of red, black and gold. From previous stories on the podcast, we know that Govan, particularly during the Victorian era, was home of Glasgow's heavy industries, particularly that of shipbuilding. Indeed. With that came higher rates of illness and poverty as the working classes amassed on the town at the banks of the Clyde. John Aitken was born in Govan in 1838 and his parents were the owners of the Stag Inn. Okay, Stag Inn. Yep. Stag Inn and then Stagaroot. Literally. <laughs> that should have been their tagline. Literally, oh my God, yes. Oh, it sold so many pints. 
Take me back. Take me back and I'll get them some heavy footfall. <laughs> oh my God, you've done such good marketing for them. Thank you. Honestly. So little is known about his early years, but records show that he was a particularly gifted medical student. Of course. Leo. Of course, because no one else did anything. He's <laughs> <laughs> the Victorian era, apart from going to medical school. Um, and he studied medicine at the University of Glasgow. Um, Aitken is known to have studied under famed surgeon Dr. Joseph Lister during his time in Glasgow. Oh God, what uh, the man known for his pioneering work in the use of antiseptics. Yes. Who we spoke about mere weeks ago. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. It's very strange. Um, Aitken graduated at the age of 21 and set up a general practice at 178 Govan Road. So Govan became a borough, which is an... Not... Oh. <laughs> right. It's catching. Which is an autonomous municipal corporation. Oh, jeez. There you go. Thank Nicely you. Done. That was almost as bad as yours. <laughs> it was. <laughs> You managed it better than I managed mine. <laughs> in 1864. From this, Aitken was appointed police surgeon and medical officer for the town based at Orkney Street Police Station. And this was in a position much like Pals a podcast, Dr. Henry Littlejohn, for the city of Edinburgh. So he was largely doing the same sort of thing in Govan. Aitken was responsible for monthly health reports highlighting the particular illnesses present within the community. It became evident that, resp that respiratory diseases were to blame for majority of deaths. The highest mortality rates were for children under the age of five. <clears throat> not, not a good statistic. Not a good statistic. Very poor statistic. So Aitken campaigned for better care for the working classes. And across the 20 years in which he practised in the borough, Govan's population continued to swell. Drawn to the town by the promise of work, the population would grow from 8,000 to 46,000 across the years that Aitken practiced. So that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people converging on quite a small town. Because mm -hmm. um, it's still quite a small town. There's a lot of people, but it's still quite small for the, people, the amount of people that live there. Um, so what had been a small borough was now a major industrial hub. But with this rapidly increasing population... The sanitation and water systems were not equipped to serve such a large number of people. From this, disease was permitted to thrive, leading to high cases of illnesses amongst the working class population. Aitken was dedicated to helping the working classes and was presented with a horse and carriage for, quote, his kind and unremitting attention to the poor in their hour of need. Aww. Yes, he was very much all about helping the working classes. Yep. And funnily enough, talking about Govan, where it's like tenements galore. So true. Yeah. It is. It is all tenements in there. Um, Dr. John Aitken died on the 11th of March, 1880, four days before his 42nd birthday. Oh, he was a youth. He was a youth. Um, his death certificate states cause of death as bronchial pneumonia, but it's believed by many that Aitken had driven himself to an early grave through his overworking and drive to help the poor of the town. Aww. I know. The memorial was unveiled in 1884, and it was said that during Aitken's lifetime, quote, 
The poor never wanted a physician or surgeon, surgeon without fee or reward as long as he lived among them. Oh. I know. That's cute. I know. So, he has a nice drinking fountain that was restored <laughs> 10 years ago, maybe. Okay. Maybe. I think that's what I read. I didn't write it down. Classic me. Yeah. Isn't that <laughs> Not writing down an important number. Anyway. So... Let's move on to the next one. So, sitting on the edge of Glasgow Green, nestled between the People's Palace and the former Templeton's Carpet Factory, sits the exquisite Dalton Fountain. And do you know the one I'm talking about? I'm not sure if I do. That's fair enough. It's okay. Don't worry about it. There will be pictures. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So you might know it. But did you know it has the claim of the largest terracotta fountain in the world? Oh, fabulous. Apparently. Did not know that. (laughs) Nice. Well done, Glasgow. (laughs) Did not know that. It was designed by Edward Arthur Pierce and commissioned in celebration of Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee in 1887. It was billed as one of the major attractions of the International Exhibition of 1888. Glasgow, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, was often referred to as the second city of the empire, referring to its heavy industries of the latter and its history of merchant trade, particularly in tobacco of the former. The fountain is symbolic of Glasgow's role in the British Empire, as depicted in the design are Britain's four former colonies, Australia, Canada, India and South Africa. Colonization. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Its design was influenced by the French Renaissance style and was built by the Royal Dalton Company and they're perhaps best known for their ornaments and tableware. It's true. They always crop up on Bargain Hunt. They do. And they can fetch a pretty penny. Pretty penny. Can a wee vintage Royal Dalton bowl. Yeah. Well, imagine how much you get for a whole friggin' water fountain. That's very true. We should get them to come out and do a special. And <laughs> yeah, I'll pretend I own the it. Hi there, this is my <laughs> fountain. I just can't take it inside. Too big, but it's very nice. Too big. Keep it in the garden. <laughs> oh dear. Um, so atop the fountain is a sculpture of Queen Victoria dressed as the Empress of India. Yet in 1894, the sculpture was struck by lightning. Would you know? That's comeuppance. That's comeuppance. <laughs> For... Colonizing <laughs> countries that were not ours. Yeah. Yep. It was particularly difficult to restore as the statue molds had actually been broken. Oh, that's a shame. So it's very tricky to fix her. Also, I should know, there's lots of water fountains across Glasgow that have got histories. I just picked three that I thought were quite interesting. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. So just as a bit of context, I should have said that at the start, but here we are. Um, so the last one, located at the junction of Roodside Crescent, metres away from Charing Cross, stands the Charles Cameron Memorial Fountain. Is this the one that's squint? It is the one that's squint. Well done! Thank you. You know your landmarks well. It's also across the road from Eek Escape Rooms, if anyone... Very true. Just saying. Very true. <laughs> so, Sir Charles Cameron, born 1841 and died in 1924, was a doctor and newspaper editor. Of course he was, again, doctor, classic, classic. (laughs) 
Um, despite studying at medical schools in cities such as Paris and Vienna, he never practised medicine, instead becoming an editor for the North British Daily Mail, which was later incorporated by the Daily Record. Okay. Okay. He became the managing owner of the paper from 1873. Cameron was elected as an MP for Glasgow in the general election of 1874 for the Labour Party. Happy times, he's not a conservative. There you go. Makes a change. <laughs> um, a staunch supporter of temperance, i.e. remaining teetotal, he would be responsible for the Inebriates Act of 1898. Oh. So, this allowed, quote-unquote, non-criminal inebriates, it's not the nicest of terms, to be admitted to reformatories if they were convicted of drunkenness four times in one year. It meant that those living with alcoholism, which was an illness that was not necessarily formally acknowledged by Victorian society, were sent to a sort of rehabilitative institution rather than to prison. I use rehabilitative very loosely. (laughs) Okay. Um, These individuals would also be ostracised from society and those that continued to serve them alcohol would be fined. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely one way of trying to stop these people from drinking. Um, but, yeah. That, that was a thing. That's a weird method of trying to help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, of course, like, the Victorian... We, obviously, today understand that addiction is an illness yeah. like in that you it's like it is a condition that people live with and it's a condition that people like they literally cannot function without the thing that they are addicted to um whereas if you were like a drunk quote-unquote in the victorian era you were just kind of seen to be a nuisance yeah and a person that just didn't really have like a good moral compass because you drank all the time yeah. Whereas, like, it's a proper psychological, like, condition that people live with addiction. Yeah. So, classic Victorians. Yeah. Um, Cameron also introduced an act that abolished imprisonment for debt in Scotland. So I suppose that's all right. Yeah. That's an okay thing. Yeah. Not sending people to prison for not being able to pay debt. Um, The fountain, which was originally constructed as a public drinking fountain, was designed by Clark, Bell and Robert Alexander Bryden and it is an eclectic mix of architectural styles including Baroque, Neoclassical and Victorian. However, in 1926, 30 years after its unveiling, it was noticed that the fountain had a pronounced eastward lean. They're not kidding. They're not kidding. <laughs> An urban myth is that its foundations were disrupted due to the construction of the M8 through Charing Cross, but its odd tilt was noted well beyond, like, this, well before that time. Um, they don't know. I don't think they really know. 
Because it's like it's it pronounced. It's not even like oh, oh, oh it's a bit yeah. off. It is fully off. Like it's it's like you can see it. Like even the um, the pavement stones round about it are lifted. Yeah, I don't don't know. Don't know. Um, known as Glasgow's quote tipsy monument. Love that. <laughs> end quote. For its drunken lean. It is somewhat ironic that it is dedicated to a man whose life's cause was to encourage temperance and abstinence from drinking alcohol. When it looks like a little drunk man. It does. Maybe that's <laughs> maybe the builders were having a laugh. Maybe they were. They thought, do you know what? This'll be a great joke in 30 years' time. Yeah. They're gonna love this. <laughs> gonna be a great thing. Uh, so that is Glasgow's Hidden Histories of Water Fountains. What a time. That's I mean, I probably have seen the other two somewhere. Well, wherever they are, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I do know the Laney one. You do know the Laney one. Well, one out of three ain't bad. No, and it's very, it is very nice looking, but I've never been able to fully appreciate the kind of, the nice kind of terracotta kind of colour of it. It's quite like... Yeah. Because I've just... got a little clock face Got a little clock well. face, but I am just fully distracted by the fact that it is literally falling over. It looks... It looks like it's like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, just less impressive. Yeah. But it does look like it's about to fall over. It's very funny. And the fact that it it looks like it's drunk and it's next to Sucky Hall Street, which is like party town. True. And so the irony is... The irony is dedicated to a man who like advocated people not drinking alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> which in Scotland is quite hard. It's not wrong. <laughs> Also, you know I mean? one of the things from this Birkenhair documentary, not documentary, podcast, is they spoke about how in certain parts of Edinburgh, everybody was dependent on alcohol because the water wasn't drinkable. So they would just drink whiskey all the time. There you go. Water a life. I think I already knew that. We've probably already spoken about it, in fact. But, um... But it's like, there's no wonder that Scotland has a bit of an alcohol-fueled culture. Yeah, it's literally probably in our blood, because all our ancestors would have getting tipsy because they couldn't drink water. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> literally undrinkable because they'd die. Um, yeah, literally. So yeah, it's not um, our fault. Not our fault. Um, but yeah, those are three relatively iconic water fountains in Glasgow. Um, again, the John Aitken one, I didn't know its full history too. Do you know how I found out about this? And this is really bizarre. It was very unusual. I happened to get off at Govan Subway one day. Um, and because the, they're trying to sell Govan as like a historic, which it is, yeah. like, place. Um, if you go off at Govan Subway, there's like a map of like the town and it had a little bit it had a little like paragraph about John Aitken and his memorial fountain and that he was a doctor that served the Victorian working classes and he sort of died early because of the stress of trying to help these people and I was like that sounds like a podcast story yes I <laughs> love there. that um, and also with the Dilson fountain which I've been past hundreds of times in my life but again very pretty to look at but didn't know its history and didn't know it refers to kind of like Glasgow's role in the the British Empire yeah and that that kind of thing and again it's very important I think it's very important now to recontextualize these things and be like 
not just go, ooh, a pretty thing, but then actually be like, well, this is what all these statues on this thing refer to. Yeah. And that for quite a lot of people, it wasn't a very good time. No. Yes, we can't so, ignore our the bad parts of our history. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's like a stunning, it's a stunning piece of architecture, but always important to contextualise, I feel. Yes, agreed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, there you go. If you're looking for something to do, go and have a wander around um, Glasgow's water fountains, because there's a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy their... There's a water fountain in Edinburgh, like Princess Street Gardens, that I've always loved. I used to love mm. when they'd have it on from time to time, and I'd be like, "Woo!" Um, they're quite <laughs> relaxing to be around. They are. They're very calming. Yeah. Because there's obviously the big one in Kelvin Grove Park as well. Yeah, yeah, that that's pretty. Stunning. Never has any water in it. <laughs> yeah, true. So it's not really so a water fountain. Hurt? It's a yeah, empty basin. I have it is an empty basin. Thank you very much for once again joining us at A Wee Bit Gothic for some more stories. Take a look at our Instagram or Facebook to see the corresponding photos. They will give you a wee visual to go along with our stories. And if you do have a question for us to answer, please do either email us or messages or comment on one of the hat posts which go up throughout the week. And should you own a little Apple device, if you could head on over to that magical little Apple podcast logo and search for a wee bit gothic and leave us a review, we would be much appreciative of it as it does help us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. Was that gothic? A wee bit. Did you hear that? What the hell was that? That was Finn. <laughs> that was him. He make... was shocked by that revelation. <laughs> that was one of his really weird noises that he makes, but he doesn't always do it. Uh... It sounded like a bird. It was like... <laughs> That's... Yeah. That's actually what it sounded like. That's one of his weird noises that he makes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, I'm so glad that Good I wasn't Lord. speaking. I bet you the podcast picked it up. Oh, that was a brilliant pause. He'd, he meant to do that. He did. He's such a performer. Back to the murder of a child. I have a water thing for the cats that is essentially like, it's got a little circulation so it keeps moving. That's true. So that's like, a bit like a water fountain. That could be the water fountain you feature next week. I think that's only fair. And then we can give the history of Lithin and Latrixi. It's a very short history because they're not quite two yet, but... But they've had many adventures. Within these four walls, yes, they have. And the hallway outside That's your true. flat. There, there was, I bumped into <laughs> one of the cleaners that work in the building. Um, uh-huh. she, Finn ran out and she'd just come through the door. So he ran out and went into the lift. Oh. And she was like, your cat's in the lift. And I was like, it's okay, it's okay because he can't reach the things. And um, so I got him out the lift. <laughs> And then she was asking all about them and she was like, oh, if ever I'm like passing by again, I'll bring a couple of cat treats and I'll pop them through the door. Oh, how nice is that? That is a good human right there. So she really took to them. 
Uh, but how could That's you know they are, they are very, very gentle, lovey-dovey creatures. I think he creatures. needs to write a kid's book about the adventures of Trixie and Finn. I think so too. And I think Trixie and Finn is a nice combination of names. It's like got a nice ring to it. Yeah, agreed. They're just the right amount of syllables. Trixie and Finn. Well, actually, Finn's name is based largely on searching for a pairing that was syllabically pleasing. Because Trixie was settled on very early on. And I always said, I was like, it has to be Trixie and uh. I was like, it has to be a one syllable name. And so the syllable, the number of syllables was actually a huge part of why he's called Finn and not Brian. He was going to be called Brian for a little while. Um, But I changed my mind. (laughs) Because Trixie Mattel, Trixie Mattel's real name is Brian. Excellent name for a cat. Yeah. But I went with Finn instead. For example, like, oh my god, <laughs> I'm so sorry. My mum just went out the back door with her hood up, and I absolutely jumped out my skin. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely jumped out my skin. I just saw this hooded figure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! We just about had a life flash. We just about had a story for the podcast. <laughs> Oh my god. She has, I think, four seasons now. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little bit of four, four seasons, Vivaldi. Anyway. That was beautiful. Thank, thank you for that segue. 